Patrick here with some exciting news. We now have 10 local communities of engineering leaders hosting in-person meetups all over the world. Yes, you heard that right. There are 10 local communities in cities all over the world. These groups are led by engineering leaders just like you who wanted to create a place to connect, to share insights, and tackle critical challenges in the job. To get involved, go to elc.community. Sign up if you haven't already. If you have signed up, make sure you update your location and we'll get you plugged in. We're launching local events all the time. You can find them and get involved again at elc.community. At the end of the day, the, the main reason I think Direct is effective is you actually sort of get to the core of the issue where a lot of people dance around the, the details and they're conflict averse. Hello and welcome to the Engineering Leadership Podcast brought to you by ELC, the engineering leadership community. I'm Jerry Lee, founder of ELC. And I'm Patrick Gallagher, and we're your hosts. Our show shares the most critical perspectives, habits, and examples of great software engineering leaders to help evolve leadership in the tech industry. Let me introduce you to Isar Lipkovitz, Executive Vice President of Engineering at Lyft. Prior to Lyft, Isar spent 15 years at Google in various leadership roles. His team of several thousand engineers built Google's display, video, and apps advertising products. Previously, Isar began his career in the Israeli Air Force. He worked at Akamai during the explosive growth of the internet and worked on the infrastructure behind Google Search. Isar shares with us the value of being direct, as well as so many other insights he's learned about leadership. We ran into a few connectivity issues, so the audio is a bit choppy in some places. With everything going on, we've found ourselves recording in more challenging environments, but hey, we're all just doing the best we can right now, right? Enjoy our conversation with Isar Lipkovitz. Welcome to our podcast, Isar. It's really exciting to have you here. Actually, I have the opportunity to spoke to quite a few people at Lyft that worked with you in the past or uh, right now. One thing that really struck me is how direct you are and, and how effective that is. So I think being direct is a very important thing for a leader, especially the ones that are higher level. Can you talk a little bit about your perspective on being direct and how that helped you to become an effective leader during your, your journey? It's an excellent question. So. <laughs> Actually, direct and journey is, is an important combination of things, right? Because I have been direct, you know, for many years, and I thought I was direct, and only when I got better at being direct, I understood what being direct actually means. You know, cut the long story short, I, I think it is a lot more effective. I think majority of the people would appreciate it. However, it's a dangerous path to follow. And I also think that I have been helped by the fact that in the past, it was less dangerous, uh, to be completely honest. And what I mean by that is, you know, things have changed, uh, especially in the world, and more so maybe in our industry, and, and you know, especially in, in, in many parts where tech is concentrated, Northern California in particular, where people like uh, honest and direct feedback, there's a lot of sensitivity. It's very easy to uh, accidentally or unintentionally uh, being too direct with people and get to a pretty bad outcome. At the end of the day, the, the main reason I think direct is effective is you actually sort of get to the core of the issue where a lot of people dance around the, the details and they're conflict averse, right? So they're trying to sugarcoat stuff. Uh, they try to be vague, hoping the person will understand. They're trying to avoid hurting people's feelings. And a lot of it is actually legitimate. 
So if you switch, you know, <laughs> to no filter, it's, it's not very effective, right? So this is the art. I think what I would encourage people to do is try to be more direct. Know what your initial bias is. If you're very conflict averse, I think anything you do to be more direct will land fine because ultimately your bias is the opposite. So you will be careful. However, if you are naturally direct, I, I think you need to be careful in how you do that. You know, and, and what I mean is you need to learn the art and you also need to be paying huge attention to your audience. And, and the last thing I would say, huge difference between uh, private conversations, one-on-one -on -one versus public conversations. Uh, the key insight here is praise in public, criticize in private. It doesn't mean that you cannot violate it. You can, but you have to start with that. So what it means is you're in a sort of meeting with a large group of people and somebody did something that disappoints you or you strongly disagree with a person. If you do it in this forum, when you give direct feedback, it ends up being criticism of a person, right? Most people can't take it because essentially you humiliate them in public. That's the only thing they can think about, right? I, I think it has multiple implications. To the person, they feel that they got humiliated in front of you know, other people. It, it often is the case also in you know, a large meeting, there's like the boss, if you're the boss, there's some people who work for you and other people. So essentially you create this uh, situation where somebody is working for you is being uh, humiliated by his or her boss in front of his or her team. And that could send a real message to the, to the rest of the team. Yeah, I mean, that's the other problem, right? Like, even if actually the person can take it, right, and he, he or she is sort of like totally comfortable with that, the team, just by virtue of being more junior, don't actually understand what happened, right? Now, what then usually happens is most people are not failing there, right? <laughs> you know, they're sort of very careful not to criticize people in general, especially in a large group. What they don't do is they don't do the criticizing in private. Whether it's because actually as a leader, you thought the meeting went well, it's fine, I don't know, right? But let's pretend that there's something you didn't like about the outcome of the meeting or the decision or you know how that person held on himself or whatnot, right? You need to follow up. And that's where most people fail because you don't only just need to follow up, you need to follow up in a timely fashion because, you know, we can talk about it later, but if you give people feedback, the first thing anybody would ask is, can you give me an example? And, you know, for what it's worth, I have no idea if this is because the person has no idea what you're talking about or, you know, and they actually want an example or they're trying to argue with you and, you know, they're trying to, you have to prove them that your feedback is based on examples, but it's like standard, right? There's two things I learned in my career. This is the one of the feedback people want an example. And if you start a worm, everybody wants to know what's the exit criteria. Right? So two different things, but just humans are very predictable. So why does it matter? Because if you want to give people feedback, you know, you need to do it as soon as you can, because otherwise you will forget, they will forget. And then you go into this sort of a complicated discussion of what's your opinion, and it's not very timely. So I think that's a pattern. And by the way, I, I'm not saying that every meeting will have to have a follow-up meeting, right? It's just too time-consuming. But I think... It's a thing that you need to do. And, and to be clear, I was mostly talking about sort of situation where people report to you, but the same with like peers or just people you work with. And it's not even necessarily disagreement, they just piss you off or whatever. You schedule a one-on-one -on -one and then you do and follow up, right? And the other thing I would say on that one is the, the sort of the I sentences. It took me years to understand it. It's another standard procedure. It's not what you did, it's how what you did make me feel. Because, you know, at the end of the day, it's the same thing. It, it, it may sound to some people like touchy-feely, but it's irrelevant. The point being is, is not whether you did something wrong. It's like, well, what you did 
made me feel that way. And, and you can't disagree with that. Yeah. Whether you want to do anything about it, it's your choice. But that's another uh, you know, thing that I strongly encourage people to use. Probably the most useful leadership skill I, I, I think I've learned is to be flexible and adaptive. People have biases, but you need to be able to work with a lot of different kinds of people. The ability to know how to work with them is, is prerequisite, you know, and then you need to know how to do it. And then you have to choose whether you want to do it. And that's a hard thing. It can be a, a piece of art. How do you get to know who that person is and, and how do you adapt internally? Do you have a, like example we can sure. uh, sort of explain on? Yeah, that's an excellent question. I, I think that now that I know what I know, when I sort of get to work with new people, I try, sort of at the beginning of the relationship, try to have these conversations. The more senior you get, you would find yourself when you meet people that some of them are sophisticated enough to try to tell you upfront how they like to work with you. Or they ask you, how do you like to work with, right? So that's great. In other situations, other people, I need to initiate the conversation. And even if you initiate, it doesn't mean you're going to reach an outcome. But in general, if you have an opportunity to have these meta conversations, it's not about the topic. It's like, how do you like to work? It's a good thing to do. It's a good thing to do with one-on-ones with people in general. Going back to the first topic we mentioned, being direct, you mentioned a very useful fact that there is a spectrum of how people are being direct. Some people are naturally conflict aversion, and for them, it's important to be aware that they probably need to be more direct. But there are other people, they have less filters. And the thing they should watch out is being too direct. So when I talk to, especially the more junior engineering leaders, I think a lot of them have the issue of being afraid of being direct. They see themselves as, you know, we are nice people, but there are cases they have to have a conversation, deliver the, the bad news or critical feedback. But this is always hard, and they have internal dialogue that, should I do that, should I not do that? The longer they waited, the more difficult that conversation become. And eventually, mm-hmm. probably just not having that conversation at all. What kind of suggestion do you have for them, and what kind of internal dialogues that you have when you're struggling hard conversation? So, so let me actually start with the, the first thing you mentioned about how to be direct ineffectively. I think the three things you sort of want to avoid, uh, I, I think... If you are direct, you have to be least emotional as possible. So if you're angry, it doesn't land very well, right? So you have to be neutral. I think that if you want to be direct with people, you should choose what to be direct about. And it's just generally things that people can change. That's the other thing. So just focus on the least that you can and just try to be neutral. It's very important, right? Uh, so if you're not in that position to do that, like, just don't do it. But back to your question about people not feeling comfortable. You know, I think a lot of people are not. I was uh, <laughs> watching uh, Chris Rock just the other day. I, I missed that. This is a 2018 tambourine piece. He has a piece afterwards about schools have no bullying policy. I, I don't want to steal his thunder, uh, <laughs> but he, he does a terrific job of basically pointing out that if you eliminate bullying from schools, you don't actually fix the problem because people deal with bullying in the real world later, and they don't know how to deal with it. And it's much better to expose them when they're young. I mean, it is an exaggerated point of view, but I still think that as society, we you know, became a lot more sheltered. So therefore, when people see a behavior they don't like with another person, they know what to do. So it's just challenging for people to be direct. I also think that given our industry has a lot of introverted people, you know, more so uh, than on average, I guess, 
those folks that are moving into management are often sort of self-selected, They're a little bit more kind of easy to work with kind of people. You know, I, I can see why that's a big challenge. Short answer to your question, you sort of have to try and you need to get better and get more comfortable with that. And like anything, you should try when the stakes are low. It's the same thing about public speaking or whatever. Just do it. Do it in situations that if you screw up, the cost is less. See how people react and get better at that. So I, I would try to do it all the time and just try to get better at that and try to like to fight your biases. And you always can start slowly. When you have a conversation personally, you should just say, well, I, I want to give you feedback. I, I want to have a conversation. You know, forgive me, I'm going to be blunt or direct. You have zero downside from prefacing. It actually helps people to understand what you're about to say rather than guessing where this is going. I think these are some basic tricks, but just do it. And then look at the person and we ready to back off. Yeah, so start by putting on direct in the conversation, but meanwhile, also willing to calibrate. Yeah, people have a hard time with that, but you know, life is not popularity context. Like you should be ready to the outcome that some people don't like you. It is what it is, you know. If you want to make sure everybody likes you, you could be successful at, at that, whether you'd be successful at anything else, I don't know. So I think that you forget the bottom of that is the, the fear of not being liked or the fear of like hurting your identity. So how do you prepare yourself for those? Are you just ready for that? So I think that this is sort of the process of learning, right? Uh, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm going to go a little bit abstract here, but the general process of learning and improving in something involves this sort of obsession and fear of not doing something because you think it's going to be difficult. You think it's going to be something you want to succeed in. You get stuck, stressed out or whatnot. Public speaking is a classic example. I've seen people that are do it all the time. Half an hour before the event, you see them pacing and trying to keep themselves busy and you know, like, it's just natural, right? Like, you need to be at the top of your game. This could be a better outcome. But, you know, so, so there's a lot of opportunity to spend too much energy preparing, and then you just stress yourself the heck out. I actually think that, you know, finding a time before this conversation to think about what you want to say is a good thing. But maybe, in, in general, uh, like, keeping yourself busy before works for me better because otherwise by the conversation starts you're just super nervous right so you you know like let's make it a concrete example you look at your schedule you see you're gonna have this conversation with this person tomorrow you think about what you're gonna say right then i would literally try to pack my day with meetings before so i won't be sitting there you know stressed out about that meeting and let's say i'm meeting this person at 11 i'm not gonna make my 9 and 10 p.m like crazy stressful meetings it's not a good idea but just you know Keep yourself busy. The pacing example you shared just makes me laugh because that's exactly what my routine looks like before going up and introducing our different events. I'm manically pacing in the background, yeah. frantically rehearsing what we're going to say. But I really appreciate what you said about like stressing ahead of time isn't helpful because that's going to make you, you know, say yeah. something, be rigid and, and not communicate well up there. And I think you boiled it down so simply. It's just really about just know the the quick things the bullet points that you want to say and the thing is is like if you are clear with that the message is going to be a lot more natural because mm -hmm. you're using more of your words and language that's right so you, you wouldn't be prepared if you think about it you know like public speaking like it, it, especially if you're doing presentations which i do not do like I, i'm much better at like what we're doing here sort of one-off i have a general agenda i'm happy with q a 
but if you, for example, if you do these like big events, these kind of Google I.O., whatever Dreamforce, right? You come in to be a keynote, like 10 minutes, everything is on. You actually have to practice the heck out of it. And I've seen a lot of very well-known people that are very good public speakers. They practice. There's no way around that. But before the event, they, they just try to distract themselves. I mean, the other thing, which is sort of a digression here, but I, I used to meditate. I don't do much of it now. I, I mostly do yoga. But, but this whole act of of sort of getting distracted and not letting your thinking process sort of just drive you nuts because you're just trying to calm your mind and do something else. And you can do it by walking, you can do it by riding a bike or whatever, is, is actually incredibly important uh, for people in general uh, that have high stress job, but like, especially in moments, you know, when you prepare yourself for that. So anything to keep your mind off it is good. Patrick here with some exciting news. We now have 10 local communities of engineering leaders hosting in-person meetups all over the world. Yes, you heard that right. There are 10 local communities in cities all over the world. These groups are led by engineering leaders just like you who wanted to create a place to connect, to share insights, and tackle critical challenges in the job. To get involved, go to elc.community. Sign up if you haven't already. If you have signed up, make sure you update your location and we'll get you plugged in. We're launching local events all the time. You can find them and get involved again at elc.community. So transitioning the topic a little bit, talking about communication. Last time when we had a conversation, you mentioned about the balance between being abstract and also being detail-oriented while having a, sure. a conversation, with, especially with yeah. upper management. Can you share your perspective on that? Yeah, that's an important tension. So w- what I found is, in general, most people, when they listen to a person describe something, right, have a, ten- a bias or tendency to prefer the people that sound uh, sort of more high-level, abstract, visionary, you know, strategy. It's different words that essentially, when you describe a topic, you sort of start top down. Practically speaking, it's always better. It's better to be optimist than you know pessimist. There's just things that are unfortunately or fortunately, whatever you look at it, are just a truth, right? The trouble is a lot of the people who are naturally good at that are often unable to explain anything in details. Either they just don't think it's important, they don't even understand any of these details. If your job is to set a strategy or vision, that's great. But if you're in a smaller group of people and you just tell them what the plan is and they're like, okay, fine. So, you know, what next step, what you do next and you get stuck, it's, it's not actually useful. Now, conversely, the, the, the people who are often most close to the details and the weeds, when they describe stuff very bottoms up and it just comes across a scatterbrain and it's just like people can't follow. You get into these traps because, you know, especially in your sort of like an, in, in, in a, business meeting or whatnot where you have cross-functional it's like you know let's be honest right if you have like a product manager an engineer and a salesperson in a meeting you know the odds are is the engineer will be the one that will go into the details way too fast right and the problem with that is the other people can't understand but worse you know you would be looked down upon right you know one of those engineers or whatnot and people won't be even understand what you're saying i i found that in general you want to sort of start higher level Make sure that you're even touching on the right point and then go down into the details. And this art of going up and down the sort of stack is, is, is very difficult, especially if you talk to people. It doesn't matter if it's public speaking or sort of meetings or one-on-one conversation. You need just to, to, to check that they understood what you said. What I found is most people are uncomfortable admitting they have no idea what you just said. 
And it's anywhere from like, well, I was on my phone, I was thinking about my cat and I wasn't paying attention, right? Because it happens all the time. The funniest ones is when, you know, and I've seen all of you had this experience in a meeting where, you know, there's a meeting with a lot of people, somebody, like two people are talking about something. Let's say it's like the most senior person in the room with another person. And then the conversation goes into some other topic and you, the, the most senior, let's say it's me, goes to this person. So, and what do you think about it? And you know, the person had no idea what you're talking about, right? And you can tell from the body language, you know, the reality is only minority of people would say, I'm sorry, I wasn't following, I wasn't paying attention. Other people would try to angle, you know, like sort of start rambling or ask follow-up questions to try to guess what the heck you just said. And this is terrible, right? And, you know, I use this extreme example because senior people in culture got caught. It is your boss. So I can see why some people think it's admitting it is terrible. But in reality, that's not the case, right? You would be surprised how many people get so much credibility from admitting anything from I wasn't paying attention to like, I'm unable to understand what you just said. Now, the other issue here is the more common one is people talk a little bit abstract because it makes the conversation crisp and people say they understand and agree, but they don't actually, you know, either because they don't understand what this expression means or it's ambiguous. Right. So these are the, the most common pattern. And unfortunately, if you're trying to deliver uh, some sort of something nuanced, you know, you actually have no idea if people understand what you, you, you're saying. One of the things that I find the most effective is let me play back to you. So you may have seen it in meetings where, and it's another pattern I encourage people to adopt, where you have been talked to and somebody asking you to do something and you want to make sure you understand. If you're the recipient, you should just say the following. Let me play it back to you what I think I heard and tell me if, if that's what you want me to do. Now, if you're the person trying to deliver some information or communicate something, you know, like you can actually demand people to do that, right? You, how about you tell me what you think I said? You can't always do it. Some people get defensive when you ask them to do that. But, you know, that's the best way. Because if you just ask people, did you understand? The answer is always yes. You know, number of yeah. meetings that I see people talk, you have a lot of people nodding. You have no idea. Yeah. And this is super risky because people are leaving the meeting, assuming that we're on the same page, but they go off and do very different things. And then later on, when things are discovered, the, the, there are gaps. People are uh, like confused or angry because that's not what I what I took away from the meeting and having those check early on is, is definitely going to be a lot cheaper to correct. Yeah. I'm actually just to, to, to build on that. I mentioned earlier that, you know, I get angry often. It's almost always because of that. And what I'm trying to say is even when I try super hard, right. I still end up with this outcome incredibly often. I appreciate kind of underneath all of this, that when you're direct and honest with people and that's coming from a place of goodwill and graciousness, you being direct is actually you trying to be really gracious to the people you're working with. These things become infinitely easier if you're honest and direct with people and that's agreed upon in, in how you're operating. The key word you said is gracious. It's an excellent word, which I should have touched on before. And, and to be completely honest, this is something I'm still working on, right? You know, and, and people who know me even a few years ago, I, I don't know, would use the word gracious to describe my behavior, right? So I, I think that, you know, for some people it comes more naturally, right? But these are the people who are usually not very direct. If you end up being direct, yeah, gracious is a very good side adjective to the company. And I think using these sort of catchphrases like, uh, can you lay back what you, I just said, 
Another thing that people do a lot, which I like, is tell me more. Somebody said something, you don't like what they said. You may be smart enough to understand there's a chance you misunderstood what they said. So instead of jumping into their own conclusion, just like, you know, force them to, to say more, right? Because, you know, and at the end of the day, it's either like a trick in some ways to kind of like, I said something very clear and somebody said say more because they don't like what I said. That's fine. I'll clarify. I, I think it's another way to address the fact that what somebody said might be ambiguous. Mm-hmm. And somebody is literally telling you like, you know, I, I think you need to clarify. I think that's such a powerful way to get past the ambiguity like you mentioned. Because then that that directly gets to the heart of what whatever's being unspoken, or if somebody's using like code language to describe something, or is trying to allude to something, tell me more about that. Opens up like no, let's directly talk yeah, about that and really. It's, it's because, and, 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 and by the way, the funny thing about it is, I, I sort of gave up on trying to understand people's motivation, right? Because w- when people speak in code language, right? You know, I, I used to think if somebody speak direct, they just the sort of conflict traverser, trying to be vague intentionally. But I discovered that many people do that because they think it makes them look smart. They're more crisp, or, or they don't want to be come across as rambling or, or too, too in the weeds, or why do I need to even explain that, right? Everybody knows what that is. But it's just crazy. And I, I do think it is getting worse for what it's worth. Do you have an example that sort of helping the audience to get a a better color for that? I'll give you an example. So I I sent an email to one of my folks trying to ask him if we can make some changes in the UI. And he got back to me and he's like, yeah, I agree with you. We should do it, but we're constrained. End of sentence. This is an email. I'm like, what does it mean? Like, what what do I do with that? Like, do you, therefore... You didn't even tell me if we're not going to do it, right? You didn't tell me what we're constrained by. Do you want me to do something about it? I have no idea what you just said, right? And, you know, this is actually an example where I, actually, it's a good example. I fell into the trap, right? Because, you know, at this point, you can try to get the outcome you want, which is what I did. I said, like, okay, I'm sorry. I have no idea what you mean. Like, are we constrained by what? Like, the code doesn't work. Marketing doesn't let you change the language. I mean, they're all legitimate constraints. So I took, uh, you know, something short and abstract and made it into a multiple choice question and spoon fed that person. And the reason I did it is because I want the answer in the email to be what I want, which is I'll get what I need to know. Whether the person got it, I don't know. For all I know, he was just brief and he was busy doing something else. And if, you know, type constraint, enter, moved on, you know, I don't know why. Yeah. Maybe he didn't want me to have this conversation. Because here's the thing about that email, by the way. I've been in that situation. If I were sending that email, it could have been the last email on the chain. There's a lot of people who would be fine with that answer. And you have no idea if they don't understand that it doesn't mean anything or they just don't care. Yeah, that's a good example. Is it feel like the email is half completed? So there mm-hmm. things should be said, but not being said. And, and by the way, the reason I know that I'm, I'm not alone with that is... I've talked to a lot of people, especially sort of more junior people, say you're at the director level or whatever, you're sitting in a meeting or whatnot, or you're on an email thread, and you see this exchange, and you know you don't feel in a position to challenge the person who made that statement, and nobody else does, and you're sitting there, what just happened here? I don't know. And those examples, if not handled correctly, that just compounding to potentially some harmful cultures, and people just follow the behavior. 
So another thing I want to talk about is in terms of career goals for engineering leaders, I think that there are two folds of it. One is how do you see helping people in your team or more junior engineering leader to, to grow to a more uh, senior level? And what are the challenges when we typically, typically got stuck? And also, what are the insights you got reflecting from your own journey? I, I think I have helped people, you know, in, in that mission, but it's not something that comes naturally to me. If I'm having a conversation with a person, somebody needs help and ask a specific question, I'm happy to answer. And also, especially people working for me or maybe one or two levels below, I have given them advice and feedback in the context that hopefully made them a better person. Now, the last thing, and then I'll answer your question more specifically, is I, I think that, you know, setting a tone in meetings you know, like even the examples we just spent on, you know, sort of tell me more or, or what do you mean, is actually an incredibly powerful way to get people to be more successful. Yeah, it's a, the lead by example kind of thing, right? And, and you just give people an alternative approach uh, to some management that I find effective. And, you know, at the end of the day, people pattern match, right? Now, back to your question, I think that the biggest thing that you can do as a leader is to give people opportunities. Because like at the end of the day, especially now, a lot of people consider, you know, look at their career growth as this sort of like promotion thing, right? Like at the end of the day, like most people are like, ah, you know, you can use this code career growth. Like when people want to have a conversation with me, like 99% of the time is like, I'm at level X, how do I get to the next level? But I, I think one of the things that we, I've seen happen at Google and I know a lot of other companies sort of adopted it. And I know it existed before in the sort of the likes of the Microsoft and Suns and whatnot. Is you, especially in, in engineering, you create a very uh, clear structure around levels with numbers and meanings, and you start writing a bunch of at the end of the day checklist. So if you want to get promoted, you need to do X, Y, and Z. And unfortunately, a lot of people use that as what they consider the benchmark for career growth. I think it's a problem, right? Uh, that said, many of these things, even if they're not about levels and scope, the, the best way for people to learn is to give an opportunity that is sort of above their current capabilities. Either they, they swim or sink. So as a leader, you know, my bias has always been to, when possible, to promote from within. So what you need to do is over time sort of figure out who is ambitious, who is interested, who has some potential. And when opportunity opens up, take a chance on people. And, and by the way, the take a chance isn't just not hiring somebody else to fill that job. It's also moving the person from what the heck they're doing. That's another big problem that all of leaders fail. So you have like two people, three people reporting to you, and one of them leaves. You can go hire another person or give the job to somebody else. You have a hole. You know, and, and so people are like, well, I can get some new talent from the outside. That's great. And... and I don't have to have two new leaders, right? So they often, people who have an existing job get screwed, right? So to me, that's the best thing I, I think I've done to, for people over time. Uh, and I continue doing that. But, you know, the rest is only, mostly around just having conversations with people. I mean, I also think that uh, using coaches and, and sending people to classes is, you know, not all of them are great, but it is useful for many people. Yeah. 
Because as a engineering leader, first of all, like we're very busy, and also we're not expert on everything. And the areas other people need to grow and get better at could be well beyond our capability. Yeah, I mean, if somebody has communication problems, for example, which is pretty common, right? Whatever, it could be anything from uh, even an accent or whatever, right? Like, uh, what am I going to do about it? Like, you know, I, I actually know about some people in the industry that have done that. I, I think it's worth it. Uh, but it's clearly not something I can help somebody with. I don't. Yeah, yeah. It, it takes a lot of skills just to to coach people on that. There's uh, people doing that as a living for a long time. Mm-hmm. So better leave those to the to the experts. Yeah. Where do you see typically people get stuck in leadership career track? What are the breakthrough moments that are sort of important for them to you know go past that? So I'll start with maybe a slightly different version of stuck, but I've seen that pattern a lot. I, I think. One of the things that makes our industry quite unique compared to so many other professions, by and large, many of the most effective managers are also highly technical, right? There are some industries where literally somebody in a management job could even come from a completely different industry, right? You know, they're just good at management. I think with engineering in particular, it's very difficult. And often the people most effective are actually very, you know, reasonably talented engineers. Yep. Maybe not the best, but, you know, reasonably talented. And then, you know, some of them get into management by some accident, maybe myself included. And many of them in the middle of their career kind of realize that actually it's not worth it. The other thing which we have on our industry, which is so weird, is if you rise up enough in the right company, you probably at some point in your 30s, 40s don't have to work anymore. So then it's kind of like, why? You know, because this whole management thing, I, I'll be completely honest, it's not easy. Right? It is not. Like, why bother? So that's, you know, and I bring it up because it's not an obvious failure mode, but it is incredibly common. I think what happened is it's usually they lose the ability to learn. And I'm not sure what it is. And I actually found myself into that trap and it kind of scared me. But, you know, you just get older and you have like family and stuff and it's sort of, you become comfortable and you sort of realize you can get to the next level. And you just don't even try and like, why bother? And the third category is the people who are, it's almost the opposite. It's like the people who are not patient enough, right? So they, they essentially, they're running away from themselves, right? So, you know, they get to a particular level and they go to their boss and they're like, you know, I'm X, you know, I think I should do X plus one, you know, make it happen for me. And, and there's two failures mode. One is like, well, your boss doesn't have a, an X plus one job for you. We don't. You just have to wait. Like, it's not even personal, right? The more common one is like, no, I need you to work on something, right? And they're like, yeah, you know, like, whatever. And, and because we have this very, you know, liquid job market, they're running away from themselves. So they've gone, going to somebody else that will give them that job, right? Like Google, for example, is such a huge company that you can literally move between organizations every few years. And the problem with that is, like, sooner or later, like, first of all, you're never going to fix your problems, whatever they are. And sooner or later, people will, you know, form an opinion of you. Yeah, yeah. And that links to the... The only thing that helps you is is people are not direct. So there's a chance that you would (laughs) piss off enough people, but they will not tell anybody else. And that goes back to the earlier point I mentioned, and I think it's really important to be aware is that, so in terms of career girls, not just look at it in the uh, lens of the level, but more importantly, it's your capability. Like, how do you improve yourself? And there's 
the blind spots and area of improvements. So it's really the the real skills that need to be leveled up. The levels or titles are just a reflection of the raw talent you have. Isar, one of the things that we were thinking about right now and and talking about a lot of what we've been talking about with being direct and and being honest, I think there's a, a big hunger from the tech community to be able to have really direct and honest conversations beyond just what's going on at work, but also what's going on in the world. And I think one of the things we were curious to get your take on, because we know Lyft as an organization does an incredible job about like addressing real issues within their organization, but also in terms of the impact that the business makes. And so we're wondering if you had any thoughts or perspectives with what's going on around inequality or some of the big diversity gaps in tech. And if you had any thoughts or uh, different things that you have done as an organization that you found to be really effective to help address um, and create places where engineering teams and engineering leaders can have more direct conversations about some of those challenges. So really just wanted to kind of open up and see if you had any uh, interesting takes or insights or perspectives about how to do that in an organization. I am a huge fan of of having a, an actual diverse workforce, uh, and, and I mean it in you know in the most broad way, right? Like difference of opinions, you know, difference of perspectives, and, and obviously difference of kind of backgrounds. So to me, the most important thing is inclusion, right? If you're inclusive, people that work with you feel that, you know they don't face microaggressions, they don't feel discriminated against, and that's incredibly important. So as a leader, I just want to empower people to bring their whole self to work. We have one final question for you, Isar. What has brought you the greatest amount of joy as an engineering leader? I mean, it happened multiple times in my career. It's this sort of being in a grind in a project for a very long time, and then you just sort of realize wow, how much we have accomplished, right? And when you reach this point, you know, it's it's not like like you know, if you work for SpaceX, Elon Musk, you know, he clearly just had that moment, right? This is a rare example, but with most software projects, you know, especially if you're not building like an actual consumer product, which I, I, I've rarely done, that end state is sort of subjective. But there is a point where you're like, wow, gee, wow, we have accomplished a lot, or, you know, we uh, sort of changed the world or whatever. And often it happens even later. It's very rewarding. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. the process that is um, enjoyable, but those moments are just really highlights and make everything worthwhile. That's right. And, you know, sometimes you just remember these moments much later, like later in your career, you look back like, wow, we've done that. Here's a quick recap from our time with Isar Lipkowitz. Being direct is valuable because it helps you get to the core issues faster. Here are some of our takeaways on the art of direct communication. If your default mode is conflict avoidance, anything you do to be more direct will be effective. But if your default mode is to be direct, be aware of your audience and mindful of your delivery. If you're choosing to be direct, number one, avoid emotions and be as neutral as possible. Number two, be direct about things that people can change. And if you can't do either of those things, then don't do it. At the beginning of your working relationships, have a conversation about expectations, how you prefer to work, how you communicate and give and receive feedback. When giving feedback, number one, deliver it as soon as possible. This could be in the space between meetings or in a follow-up one-on-one that's scheduled. And number two, provide specific examples. 
Remember, it's not about what you say or whether what happened was wrong. It's about how you make people feel. If someone gets upset, you can't argue with how they feel because it's their subjective experience. So when you're giving feedback, use I statements to make feedback conversations less accusatory. So to use an I statement, what you do is you describe the specific behavior and then the feeling that resulted. So for example, I feel upset when X doesn't happen on time and the delay wasn't communicated to me ahead of time. And remember the maxim from Dale Carnegie, praise in public, criticize in private. Here are our takeaways about how to overcome the fear of being direct. To increase your comfort, you can start being more direct when the stakes are low. Another tool you can use is to preface a direct conversation with something like, I'd like to have a conversation and give you some feedback. Forgive me, I'm going to be blunt or direct. This helps prepare people to understand what you're about to say so that they can then better receive that feedback. Here are some strategies for effective communication and creating better understanding. Most people tend to prefer top-down communication, where you start at a high level, sharing the vision and strategy first, followed by specific details. So to communicate effectively, start high level and then go into the details. Sometimes asking people, did you understand me, isn't effective. You'll most likely just get head nods, yes. Here's how you create better understanding. So if you don't understand what someone said, confirm your understanding with the framework, let me play back what I think I heard and tell me if that's what you want me to do. Or if you don't like what they said, there's a chance that you misunderstood and you can clarify that by using, can you tell me more about that? If you don't think somebody understood you, directly ask them, can you repeat back to me what you think I said? This last one doesn't work universally and can sometimes cause defensiveness. How you avoid that defensiveness is by setting the expectation for these types of conversations up front. Explain why you're asking, share the cost of misunderstanding, and when you use these clarifying questions, come from a place of graciousness. Our last takeaways are about how to support the career development and growth of engineering leaders. Give people opportunities above their capabilities. Identify who has potential and is interested in leadership and take a chance on them when an opportunity opens up rather than going externally to hire somebody else to fill that position. Identify their blind spots and areas of improvement and help people develop those skills. Encourage people to get coaches and classes to expand their capabilities, especially when it's outside of your own competency. We'd like to give a special thanks to Mesmer, the exclusive accessibility partner of the Engineering Leadership Podcast. Mesmer's AI bots automate mobile app accessibility testing to ensure your app is always accessible to everybody. To jumpstart your accessibility and inclusion initiative, visit mesmerhq.com forward slash ELC. You can also follow the link in our show notes. That's mesmerhq.com forward slash ELC. If you enjoyed the episode, make sure that you click subscribe if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or follow if you're listening on Spotify. And if you love the show, we also have a ton of other ways to stay involved with the engineering leadership community. To stay up to date and learn more about all of our upcoming events, our peer groups, and other programs that are going on, head to sfelc.com. That's sfelc.com. Or you can also follow the link in our show notes. See you next time on the Engineering Leadership Podcast.